The Bible said, speaking of that first angel's message, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, number one, fear God. Number two, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is what, beloved? The Bible says the hour of his judgment, what? Does anyone know the difference between the first angel's message saying that the hour of God's judgment is coming and the hour of his judgment is come? Talk to me, anybody. If something is coming, then it's still where? In the future. But if something is come, then it's going on when? Beloved, the first angel's message says that the hour of God's judgment is come. Or in other words, the first angel's message brings us into a present judgment. A present judgment. Now, I'm not going to go into the study today, but the Bible teaches in the book of 2 Peter, I believe it is, that judgment begins, guess where? At the house of God. Do you know that before God judges the atheist, before God judges the Luciferian or the Satanist or the Buddhist or, or whoever else is out there, God first looks at those who claim Christ as a Savior. Judgment begins at the house of God. But when you study throughout the Bible, you'll see that when Jesus comes to reward his saints, the rewards of the righteous don't begin with the living. Did you know the Bible says that the dead in Christ would rise, guess what? First. Now, if Jesus rewards the dead in Christ first, do you suppose the dead in Christ are judged before the living in Christ? That's a study, beloved, but the answer is yes. I'll give you the short answer. The answer is yes. Before Jesus judges a single living saint, he deals with the dead saints first. This is why at his coming, the Bible says that the dead in Christ rise first. They're rewarded first because they were judged. Guess how? First. But judgment begins always at the house of God first. The Bible says we should also worship him that made or created heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Beloved, are you being judged today? By show of hands, how many of you don't know? Are we being judged today? You see, that was a trick question. You got to follow what I'm asking. I began by saying that judgment begins at the house of God. Are we the house of God? Do we believe in Christ? I showed you, or we spoke about it rather, that the rewards begin not with the living, but with the dead. The dead shall resurrect first. Isn't that right? So then before God judges a single living person, he must first judge the dead who believe in Christ. Are you alive or are you dead? Some of you look like you might be dead. You're not saying anything. I know the Bible says the dead know not anything, beloved. Talk to me. Are we alive in this room today? So then I'll ask you again, has judgment yet come to any of us? Not yet, beloved, but I'm going to tell you this. This is, this is just a, a point that I'll put in aside right here. You could ask me about it later. There is coming a time very soon where judgment will pass 
from the cases of those who believe that are dead to the cases of those of us who are alive. We've been talking about God preparing a people to do what? Stand. Has God, have we been talking about God preparing a people to stand true to him? Can a dead man stand true to God? Why not? Because he's dead. The Bible says the dead know not anything. That when we die, our love is gone, our hatred is gone. We're not ghosts running around. The, the dust returns to the ground. The, the breath returns to God. A dead man cannot stand in the judgment. It takes a living people to do that. So when we're talking about God preparing a people to stand, he's talking about preparing a living church. What kind of church, beloved? Are you his church tonight? Are you alive? Then what is he doing? Preparing? Don't say somebody else. He's preparing who? He's preparing you and I, beloved. God is preparing us. Do you believe he can get the job done? Do you trust that God can prepare you to stand in judgment? How many of you are afraid of judgment? By show of hands. Be honest. All right. How many of you have ever been to court? Now, in court, there's a judge. Isn't that right? There's a law. Nine out of ten, if you've gone to court, you might be on the wrong side of the law, but God is gracious. Before the law of God, is there anyone in this room who is on the wrong side of the law? Is there anyone in this room who has ever sinned? So when we think about judgment, we tend to, 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 to become afraid. Isn't that right? Worried. Bothered. Beloved, do you know that if you're afraid of God's judgment, your focus is in the wrong place? Do you remember the words of Jesus? Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3? Thou will keep him in what? Perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. If we trusted God with our case, if we trusted Christ with our case, do you know it would be impossible to be afraid of God's judgment? Now follow what I'm saying. Brother Paul is not saying that the judgment is not solemn. Is that what I said? Very solemn time in which we live, beloved. What I'm saying is when our focus is in the right place. If I focus on Brother Paul, do you know there's nothing to smile about in the judgment? If I focus on myself, the way that I am, the way that I uh, think, the way that I speak, the way that I eat, the way that anything about Brother Paul, none of that can save me in the judgment. But if I focus on a better man, if I focus on who? Who said Jesus? Praise God. I said a better man. They said Jesus. So they know the better man. Praise the Lord. If I focus on a better man, his name is Jesus. Do you know that there is peace for me to have in the judgment? Some of you don't believe me. Go to Colossians chapter 3. I want to show you something that God says. Colossians chapter 3. Now we know that in the judgment, God is looking at our lives. Isn't that so? Do our lives come up in review before God in the judgment, beloved? Yes, they do. Colossians chapter 3. Are you there? The Bible says this, catch this, I want you to keep this, beloved, because those of you who raised your hand saying that you are afraid when you think about the judgment, this text right here will give you peace by the grace of God. The Bible says in verse uh, 1 of Colossians chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ where? Where is your life this evening? Hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, beloved. When Christ, what are the next uh, four words? Who is The Bible says, when Christ, who is what? Our life. Beloved, did you know the Bible says that Christ is your life? I'm going to ask you again. Do our lives come up in review before God in the judgment? Yes, they do. If Christ is your life, is there any reason for you to be afraid of that fact? Beloved, some of you, some, uh, we, we have to shake it off. We have to catch this point, beloved. The only reason we fear the judgment is because our focus is in the wrong place. If we can claim that close, intimate, and personal relationship with Christ, the Bible says he is your life. To review your life, beloved, is to review Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible said, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. The fact that Christ became us, beloved, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, is all of the foundation we need to come to God in the time of judgment with confidence. Jesus has united himself to us in such a way that it is impossible to talk about the man without talking about us. Did you know that? God's desire by the end of this great controversy is if any man should ever ask Jesus, what does God look like? He wants to turn to you and me and say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Beloved, Jesus is so closely united to us, it is impossible to study us without first looking to him. And as our high priest tonight, what I want you to understand that he is doing, Jesus is working in such a way in heaven, where? To make sure that everything his life says about you and I becomes the reality, practical in our experience. Was Jesus righteous? Are any of us? But is Christ our righteousness? Can he make us righteous by his grace alone? Yes, he can. Was Jesus uh, 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 beloved of his father? Was he God's only beloved son? Then what does that make you and I? We are beloved, my brother. The Bible says you are accepted, guess where? In the beloved Jesus. Beloved, the point that I want you to see is that in the judgment, we have no need to be afraid. While it is a solemn time, beloved, it is a time where we must put our entire trust, our entire dependence, not on what men can do, but on what Christ has done for you and I. Can we trust him? Will we trust him? Now, the Bible said that we are to fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment is not coming, but it is come, and we were to worship the creator. Now, during these past couple of studies, we've talked about the worship of the creator, haven't we? Tell me what day, according to uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, open book test, what day did God bless to signify his creative power? The Sabbath, and that is the, the first day of the week. Second? 
Amen. It's the seventh day of the week. So the seventh day of the week, when the Bible says that in the hour of his judgment, we are to worship God, it means that in the hour of his judgment, God is calling a people back to the worship of the creator, back to the seventh day Sabbath. Have we seen that there is a power who has sought to rob us of that Sabbath? What does it mean to fear God, beloved? Does God desire us to be afraid of him at this time? I heard respect him. Is that what it means to fear God? Yes. In the book of Genesis, do you remember when Adam had sinned? God came into the garden. Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says that God came into the garden and he asked, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice walking in the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. Does God desire us to be afraid of him tonight? No, beloved. So I'll ask again. What does it mean to fear God? My brother said, respect him. I want to show you that from the word of God. Proverbs chapter 8. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. We want to understand because, beloved, there are those who open the word of God tonight. And as they see these words, fear God, they take it literally to mean be afraid of him. But we want to see what the word of God has to say regarding that fear. Proverbs chapter 8, beginning at verse 13. Are you there? Proverbs 8 and verse 13, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is to do what? Hate evil. Does the Bible say the fear of the Lord is to hate evil people? Beloved, let's make it plain. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. So when the first angel calls our attention to the judgment and says at that time we are to fear God it is saying that God desires to create in you and I a hatred for evil a hatred for sin is that clear God wants us to hate sin now often um, more often than not people tend to hate sinners rather than sin isn't that right you know that it's possible to hate a man who's done a wrong thing and the very wrong thing that he's done, we love to watch it on TV while somebody else is doing it in a movie. People tend to hate sinners, but don't necessarily hate sin. God is seeking to reverse that in our experience where we treat every sinner as the purchase of his blood, but we never compromise with the sin. What do you say? Beloved, is sin dangerous? Is sin dangerous? Yes, it is, sister. Sin is the very reason for which Christ went on the cross. And anything that could put my Savior in a tomb, I want nothing to do with it. If a man walked into this room, husbands, right now and began to attack your wife, is that a man that you feel you would be uh, at peace with? Keep it. Be very honest with yourself. Wives, if a man walked into this room right now and assaulted your husband, is that a man that you could feel at peace with in that moment? No. No. Not naturally. So what happens when sin comes into the picture? Crucifies our Savior on a cross. Wounds his precious brow. Puts holes in both hands and both feet. Drives a spear through his side and has the audacity to try and keep him in the tomb after that murder. Is sin something that we can have peace with, beloved? God desires to create a hate in us for sin and not for sinners. What do you say? Proverbs chapter 16, we're talking about the fear of the Lord. The Bible says, By mercy 
and truth. Iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men do what? Depart from evil. So the first angel's message is calling for people not only to identify sin, but to do what with sin? Depart from it. Now that's the people that are working hand in hand with the Lamb. Think about it. If Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and God is working with a people who fear Him that depart from sin, can you see that they're working hand in hand with that Lamb? If Jesus is working to take away the sin, and the people are working to depart from the sin, then both parties are seeking to separate sin from sinner. Isn't that right? Working hand in hand with Jesus. There was a special number of people in the book of Revelation chapter 14 called the 144,000. Do we remember mentioning them? The Bible said of these people that they follow the Lamb. They follow who? The Lamb wheresoever He goes. Beloved, do you know that it is impossible for you and I to become a part of that special number? if our experience stops with a dying lamb. Is Jesus a dying lamb today? Did he resurrect? What is Jesus Christ today? He is a living priest. So then our experience has to go from dying lamb and follow him throughout his ministry as a living priest. Is the point clear? That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to go wherever he is. Psalms chapter 19, another text in regards to the fear of the Lord. In the book of Psalms chapter 19, beginning at verse 9, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is what? Clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is clean. So in the first angel calling us to fear God, he is calling us to depart from evil, calling us to hate evil, calling us to be cleansed of sin. Is it clear, beloved? Now we're taking baby steps, but beloved, I promise you, we have to pay attention even to the baby steps right now because what we're getting ready to talk about in the next uh, few moments is heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. How many of you in this room think that you have the strength to, to, to carry what we're about to talk about? Somebody better raise their hand and tell me they have a mighty friend in Jesus. Amen? Jesus Christ is able to assist us. We can do all things through Christ. Yes, my brother. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's, imper it's imperative that we see the little steps so that when we get to the bigger steps, Jesus can assist us. What do you say? So we see that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Amen? The fear of the Lord is not only to hate sin, but to depart from it. Amen? The fear of the Lord is clean, or in other words, those that truly fear God in this generation are seeking to be cleansed. They're seeking to be what? Now, who alone can do that? Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, and then we'll move forward. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Did Christ give himself for the church? When did he do that? At the cross. Amen? The Bible says that there's a reason why Jesus died on the cross. In verse 26, the Bible says that he might sanctify and do what? Cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. 
I'm going to read that again. Verse 25 said that Christ gave himself for the church so that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Jesus died for a purpose. And that purpose was to cleanse his church. What was the purpose? So then if a man claims the sacrifice of Christ as a lamb, but rejects the ministry of Christ as a high priest to be cleansed, can you see that the plan of redemption in his specific case never reaches God's exact purpose, the fulfillment of the plan? It's not enough to buy the sinner. God wants to bring the sinner back to him. So the lamb pays the price, amen? But the priest takes what was purchased, you and I, and cleanses it, preparing a place that it may inhabit the city of God. How many of you have received the blood of the Lamb? How many of you are receiving the work of Christ as a high priest? So then we're experiencing cleansing. Don't overthink it, beloved. There are things that you have been struggling with for years, and, and, and you'll notice that with prayer and Bible study, with prayer and what? Do you know that's how we spend time with Jesus? Yes. With prayer and Bible study, putting our hand to the plow, sharing the gospel with others, do you know that things that we struggled with years ago, we begin to realize that when we're tempted with those very same things, the temptation is not as strong. Beloved, I want you to understand, it's not that the temptation has lost strength. It's that by the grace of God, power has been applied to your case in that specific situation. When we're talking about cleansing a people from sin, Jesus is very practical. How many of you would invite people over to your house right now if the home wasn't clean? Before we invite our visitors, do we clean up a bit? Do we only clean the kitchen or do we want to clean the living room where they might sit down? We'll clean that too, amen? Jesus is very practical. Now, what about your children? You've just cleaned the house. You're expecting uh, Pastor Rob to come by and, and, ha and have some bread or, 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 you know, there are other things, but I love bread. Uh, some other things. He's expected to spend time with you, but the child runs into the house with mud on their shoes. And behind the child with the mud on his shoes comes the two or three dogs you may have with mud on their paws. And they run all throughout the house. Is that an acceptable place to invite somebody in? So what do we do? Clean the house. Beloved, I told you, judgment begins at the house of God. And before God can call men from outside in all of these other denominations and other worlds to come into the Christian faith, to come to Jesus, he has to clean up his house, beloved. He has to cleanse you and I of our sins. When we're talking to other men about a Savior whose blood is so pure and so deep that it can wash away every stain, but the very men preaching the message have the very stains of the world, do you know it's hard for the world to believe us? Very hard, beloved. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul, he says, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. And so the lesson is very simple. The preaching of the gospel to the world is dependent upon yours and my experience in the same power. Are we experiencing that power, beloved? What does it mean to give glory to God? The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of giving God glory. Can we glorify God in a sinful condition? 
The room has gotten quiet. The Bible says, for all men, how many men? Does that include everyone in this room? All men have sinned and come short of giving God glory. Does sin glorify God? It comes short of it, the Bible says. So then if God is expecting you and I to give him glory in this generation, then what must he do with our sins, beloved? He has to cleanse us. He has to take it away. Isn't that right? Does anybody know what that grenade on the screen represents? Does anybody know what a grenade is? All right. I might have to ask the right questions. Are grenades dangerous, beloved? What about a grenade without the pin? Oh, that's very dangerous. Those are the ones that blow up. Isn't that right? Beloved, sin is as an exploding grenade. It's as a grenade with its pin removed. And God is seeking to take that thing away from us because while it hasn't exploded yet, you know, there, there, there are things that we do and we tend to think that because it hasn't caught up with us yet, it's not dangerous. But Jesus understands the nature of sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. Now, does God desire death for anyone in this room? Not at all. He desires to give us the gift of everlasting life. But in order to give us that gift, beloved, the grenade has to be taken out of our hands. Would any of you let your child run up and down with a grenade with no pin in it? I pray you wouldn't let them run down with a grenade at all. Pin or no pin, amen? It's dangerous, and so Jesus has to take it away. What I want us to see is that redemption is a restoration to the way of God. Redemption is what? To the way of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not even one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now that's interesting. The Bible says that there is none of us, beloved, that seeks after God. By show of hands, how many of you came here seeking the word of God? Do you know that that's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts even now? No man seeks after God. When we find ourselves, beloved, let me tell you something. Young men and young women my age, I'm 29 years old, seem to find everything and anything else to do with their time. They, they, if you talk to them, they'll let you know, I have better things to do with my time than sit down and talk about Bible prophecy. And so when we find ourselves gathered together like this, I need us to understand it is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is quite literally working on our hearts. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. Where did we go, beloved? Out of the way. And they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The Bible says that because of sin, we have all gone out of the way. And I've said that redemption is the restoration to the way of God. Amen? Now follow the wording very carefully. We have all gone out of the what? The way. Redemption is a restoration to the what? Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the? Where is Jesus tonight? He's in heaven. That's the general answer. No Christian will argue with you about that. Did you know that? That Jesus is in heaven. But when you get to the specifics now about where Jesus is, that's where we find confrontation. 
The Bible said that all men have gone out of the? Jesus says, I am the? Where is the way of God, Jesus Christ, tonight? The Bible says in Psalm 77 and verse 13, Thy way. Thy what? Who is the way of God? Jesus. The Bible says, Thy way, O God, is in where, beloved? The sanctuary. The Bible says that all men have gone out of the way. Redemption is a restoration to the? Jesus says, I am the? And the Bible says of Christ, Thy way, O God, is where this evening? In the sanctuary. There isn't a Christian today in 2021 that will argue about whether or not Jesus is in heaven. Or at least I haven't met them yet. But when it comes to the specific place in heaven where Jesus is, there is a lot of confrontation. Did you know that? The Bible said the way of God is where? In the sanctuary. Does anyone know what the purpose of the Hebrew sanctuary was? Where did we get the slaying of lamb concept from? Where did that come from? Was it not from the Hebrew sanctuary? Do you remember they were slaying lambs? Why don't we slay lambs today, beloved? Talk to me. Get the blood flowing. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. No need to slay a lamb when we have a lamb that's already slain. Praise the Lord. Did the Hebrew sanctuary plan end with the slaying of a lamb? No, beloved. Study, study the book of Leviticus and you'll see that in the Hebrew sanctuary plan, which was simply a, a yearly service that showed you God's plan of redemption, it starts with a dying lamb, but it only ends with a living priest. Jesus has to be both, beloved. I asked you, is he dead today? So then what is he doing right now? Think about it. How serious is COVID-19 to you? Is it serious, beloved? Our lives being lost. Now somebody says, well, I don't know if it's real. Beloved, listen, our lives being lost. That's serious enough for me. All right? Lives are being lost. Do you suppose Jesus cares about that fact? Why hasn't he returned yet? Because the work of the lamb was done at the cross. Praise the Lord. But the work of the living priest is to cleanse a people. Are we cleansed yet, beloved? So then the delay in Christ's coming is not something with Christ being tardy. It's a condition of our hearts. It's because the people who claim the Lamb of God have yet to receive the cleansing power of the priest that lives today. In the book of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, did you know the Bible said, Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What was the purpose of the sanctuary? That God may dwell among us. Do you know that the gospel is so simple? Jesus wants to be close to you and I, beloved. He wants a close, intimate, personal relationship. He said, build the sanctuary for one purpose, that I may dwell among them. And when you study the gospel according to the apostle Paul, you'll see that those words among them actually means Jesus wants to dwell within. Now, it's interesting that God would say, I want to dwell among them. I want to draw near to them. What was it that separated us from God? 
Does anybody have a Bible text to verify that? Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, beloved. The Bible tells us that it is sin that separates us from God. So when God instituted the sanctuary service as uh, shown to the Jewish nation, his intention was to remove the thing that separates us from him. Isaiah chapter 59, are we there? The Bible says in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated. Has done what? Separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So when God instituted the sanctuary service, which was a yearly unfolding of the plan of redemption, the entire purpose was to remove the thing that separates us from God so that he could draw near. What was the thing that separated us? Sin. Now, if you study Psalms 121, verses 1 through 2, the Bible says, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord. But then in Psalms chapter 20 and verse 2, the Bible says that the Lord actually sends help. The Lord actually sends strength from his sanctuary. Do you know that it is impossible as a Christian to stand in the power of God in our generation and to deny the fact that there is a sanctuary from which Christ is working this evening? If we accept the Lamb, amen. But because we have a living priest, beloved, do you suppose we ought to also accept him? On our screen, we have a, a, a depiction of what the Hebrew sanctuary looked like. There were six articles of furniture, specifically, divided into three specific places. The first was known as the outer court. The second was known as the holy place. And the third was known as the most holy place. Does anybody know why God decided to split up the sanctuary into three parts? Does anybody know? It was symbolic of the fact that the plan of redemption has not one phase, but guess how many phases, beloved? Phase one, we call the outer court. Phase two is known as the holy place, and phase three is known as the most holy place. Have you ever heard the terminology, three strikes and your? Is God seeking to end the work of Satan in our generation? Is he seeking to win the great controversy war that began in heaven? Can God do that with only one-third of the plan? Now, I'm speaking respectfully, beloved. Who gave us the plan? Does God intend to use every part of the plan that he gave in the Bible? So then we need not one-third of the plan, not two-thirds of the plan, but three strikes and the devil is out. Say that with me. Three strikes. Do we want to understand the entirety of God's plan? Do you know that the majority of the Christian world today is fighting the devil with only one-third of the plan? Only one-third of the understanding. They accept the lamb who died at the altar of sacrifice. They accept the, 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 the lamb as he resurrected, symbolized by baptism and the labor, but they know nothing of a holy place or of a most holy place experience with Jesus. Are we aware of all three phases and our need of them tonight? Beloved, we're talking about start... Middle, and guess what? Finish. A complete system of truth. Altar of sacrifice. The labor. 
the seven-branch candlestick, the altar of incense, the table of shewbread, and this last article is called the Ark of the Covenant. All six articles of furniture in the sanctuary given to the Hebrew nation were designed to show how God desires to restore his way in his people. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Jesus says, I am the? Romans says, all men have gone out of the? And the way we get back is highlighted for us in the sanctuary. Now on the cross, the Lamb of God was sacrificed. Praise the Lord. Jesus said three very famous words. Does anybody know what those three words were? It is finished. Now when Jesus said the words, it is finished, do we know what he was talking about? How many parts to the sanctuary, beloved? One? Three. So then when Jesus said it is finished, was he saying the entire plan was done right there? If you study in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, let's go there. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. When Jesus said the words, it is finished, what did he mean? Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without what? Strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for what kind of people? When did he do it? When we were without? Strength. So the issue with the cross, right, was when Christ came, the people who professed faith in God had no strength. This is why the gospel is called the power of God unto salvation. It is by Christ's death on the cross that we receive power in our fight against sin and against self. Did you know that? Somebody says, what about Moses? Moses was a godly man, was he not? Was Elijah a godly man? What about Enoch? or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or any of those prophets, were these godly men? Did they live godly lives? Was that before or after the cross that they did that? Do you know that even those men, the lives that they lived, the godly lives that they lived, they lived by faith in the Son of God? When Jesus died on the cross and he said the words, it is finished, the new covenant by which those men lived by faith was ratified by blood. The blood of Jesus, when he says it is finished, he is saying that while you were without strength before, here is the reason why you can live a life, not with weakness, but guess with what? Strength. Is there power enough in the blood of God? The Lamb of God says there is. Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 10 and 11, confirms this very thought. Revelation chapter 12, speaking of that war in heaven, Beginning at verse 10, the Bible says, after the dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, the Bible says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the, who is the lamb, beloved? When was his blood slain? At the cross. So the Bible says that strength came to those who had no strength at the cross with the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. So when Jesus says it is finished, while many of the Christian world take those words and use it as shutting down the rest of the plan, what he was saying was the power necessary, 
the provision necessary. And beloved, let me tell you, it is effective provision. All of it was made possible by that sacrifice. When Jesus says it is finished, he's not saying, all right, I died here, never mind everything else that I gave to you because I didn't know what I was talking about, is it? No. He is saying the power that we lacked, he has now supplied. We can follow him by faith because of the power we find there at the cross. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. The burden of those words, it is finished, beloved. Think about it. Whatever burden it is that you're struggling with right now, whatever it is, too big for you, immovable, you've been dealing with it for years, Jesus says that burden is lifted, guess where? At Calvary. He says it in even better words. He doesn't say burdens are lifted. He says that burden, it is finished. If we trust Jesus with the burdens we have, beloved, there is strength enough today to help us walk in a better life. His work on earth as a lamb. Now, did Jesus stay dead? Do you know that this uh, second piece of furniture in the outer court, known as the laver, was always filled with water? And water in the Bible is what is used for baptism. Isn't that right? Are we baptized with water? Yes. Jesus was resurrected. Did you know that baptism is a symbol of newness of life? The death of the old and the resurrection of the new? In the book of Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus resurrected, and not only did he resurrect, but he went to heaven, and this same Jesus is coming again. When Jesus said the words, it is finished, he meant that his work as a dying lamb, his work on the earth was finished. But how many offices does Jesus have in the plan of redemption? A dying lamb and a living? Did the apostle Paul tell you in Hebrews chapter 4 that tonight we have a faithful high priest, the man Christ Jesus? So what about the rest of God's plan, beloved? What about his work in heaven? It takes a living priest. Hebrews chapter 8, I want to show you something. Winding down. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Say amen when you're with me. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Father, bless these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. What is a sum, beloved? It's the total. It's the summary of everything that the Apostle Paul has ever told you, beloved, in the book of Hebrews. He says, this is the sum. This is what I've been trying to say. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the what? No, that, that word, is that word in your Bible? What does it say? It says a minister of the? sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. The Apostle Paul says, you can read Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You can read everything I've told you, but if you read these things and you miss the sum of what I'm trying to tell you, the fact that we have a high priest in a sanctuary in heaven tonight, then why did you read what I wrote? When I wrote the book of Romans, I wanted you to see one thing. 
When I wrote the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, I wanted you to see one thing. The sum is that we have such an high priest in heaven today, a minister of the sanctuary. His name is Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 3, the apostle Paul tells us concerning Christ, beginning at verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider. Do what? Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. His name is Christ Jesus. How does God's priestly ministry, how does Christ's priestly ministry affect us tonight? Is that an important question? Are you aware that the the death of the lamb affects you? Are you aware that the ministry of a living priest also affects you? How does it affect us? Is that a good question? Do you know that the sanctuary is not just an old Hebrew relic? It actually shows us the path of Christian development. The Bible says that Christ, the responsible party, uh, must die, and so Christ becomes the responsible party, and he dies. But in Galatians 2 and verse 20, the Bible says, I am crucified, guess what? With Christ. Were we crucified with the Lamb of God? Were we buried with the Lamb of God? Do you know that the Bible says that even baptism is a symbol that we have followed him into newness of life? The Bible says that that seven-branch candlestick... Now, what do you get from candles, beloved? Light. Do you know the Bible says that you are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven? So the seven-branch candlestick actually tells us of evangelism in the Christian life. We were crucified with Christ. We followed him into resurrection, and we live our life to share the word with others. Now, the Bible says that a Christian lives a life of prayer. Is that true? What about the table of shoe bread? What does that represent? Man should not live by bread alone, but by every... Does the Christian life involve Bible study? Yes, it does. Do you know what's in that last piece of furniture in this most holy place? The commandments of God were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Leviticus. It is in this place that we become law-abiding citizens sealed for heaven. In Exodus 25, you can read all about how God had them lay out the, 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 the seat, the mercy seat, and the two covering cherubs that you see here. The whole, the whole uh, blueprint. The Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 12 that we are going to be judged by that very same law. Now, the first angel told you the hour of his judgment is not coming, but it is come. And if judgment is come, do you suppose we ought to have a heightened understanding of God's law? And not only of the law, but guess what? The lawgiver, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, that the whole duty of man, the whole reason for why we were created, is to fear God and keep his commandments. Christian experience, beloved, right there in the sanctuary. In Proverbs chapter 4, the Bible says, the path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. We begin with the crucifixion at the cross, but it shines more and more and more and more onto the perfect day where Christ has a people prepared to stand. Now question, 
if all that I've said here is true, why haven't most Christians heard of this, what we're talking about? Most Christians hear about the sacrifice of the cross, amen? But most Christians hear nothing about a high priest in heaven. Why have most Christians not heard what Brother Paul is talking about right now? Is that a good question? Beloved, we're closing. I need you to be with me. Is it a good question? Did you know that the Bible says, speaking of the little horn, which represents the papacy, in Daniel chapter 8, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great towards the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. The place of the sanctuary was what? The place of the sanctuary was what? Why is it, Brother Paul, that in most Christian denominations, the sanctuary teaching has no place amongst professed Christians? The Bible says there would be something called the little horn power. It is also known as the beast. It is also known as the whore. It is the Vatican, beloved. It is the Roman Catholic Church. But the Bible said, speaking of it, that they would throw down the place of the sanctuary. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint, How long? What is the question? How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? How long is God going to allow this power to take the sanctuary truth and keep it under his foot so that Christians don't understand anything about what we're talking about? The Bible says, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, interestingly enough, we're closing right now. Baptist scholar by the name of John Gill has this in his commentary on, J on Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. He said, these 2,300 days may be considered as so many years. 2,300 days, 2,300 years. Which will bring it down to the end of the sixth millennium or thereabout. When it may be hoped that there will be a new face of things upon the sanctuary and the church of God, and a cleansing of it from all corruption in doctrine, discipline, worship, and conversation. John Gill, Baptist scholar, is simply saying that at the end of the 2300 days, what Christians should be expecting is a restoration of the truth concerning the sanctuary of God. Now, I told you that the little horn power cast down that truth. Did you know that the sacrifice of Christ, represented by the altar of sacrifice, was replaced by the doctrine of penance? What is it that makes us reconciled unto God? Is it the works that we do or is it the sacrifice of Christ? The sacrifice of Christ. But along came a power, a church, that said the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't enough. We needed to do penance. Did you know that baptism was also cast down and replaced by sprinkling and something known as infant baptism? History will teach you that the word of God was also cast down and replaced by unbiblical traditions. Christ's mediation was cast down and replaced by the confessional booth. The light of the church was cast down because they were persecuted for 1,260 years, known as the Dark Ages. If it's a dark age, beloved, do you suppose there is any light? No. And we know that the law of God was also cast down because the papacy thinks to change times and laws. Have we covered that through our studies? 
The entire sanctuary truth that we're talking about right now was literally cast down by that power. Can you see it? But the Bible said that this truth would be restored. It would be what? Here's our last slide, beloved. In the 1300s, God had a man by the name of John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was the man who gave the word of God back to the people in Europe in their native tongue. Has anybody ever heard of the man John Wycliffe? If you were a follower of John Wycliffe in his day, you would be known as a lollard. Do you know that the lollards were persecuted as a cult by Roman Catholics in those days? In the 1400s to the 1500s, God had a man by the name of Martin Luther, who represents the Lutherans. And Luther restored the article of furniture known as the altar of sacrifice. Luther said, penance is not what we live by. The just shall live by faith in the Son of God. And so what we're seeing is that throughout Protestantism, throughout the, uh, the persecutions and everything that was going on, God is slowly but surely restoring the sanctuary truth. In the 1500s, God had a man by the name of John Calvin who speaks for the Presbyterians, and he restores the altar of incense because John Calvin preached that we ought not to go to priests to get to God, but we could have a close, intimate, and personal relationship with Jesus. We could go to him personally by ourselves. Do you know that if you are a Calvinist, if you are a, a Lutheran in the days of uh, John Calvin, if you were a Presbyterian in the days of John Calvin, you would have been persecuted as a cult by guess who? The Lutherans and everybody that came before them. There was a pattern that repeated, beloved, over time. God sends truth to Martin Luther. And the people believe the truth with all their heart, but they don't see that God is going to send more truth. And so when more truth comes through a man by the name of John Calvin, and John Calvin is teaching this thing, they hold to what Luther said, but they don't follow on to hear what John Calvin has to say. And so John Calvin and his people are persecuted as a cult. In the 1600s, God had a man by the name of John Smith and Roger Williams, who founded the Baptist Church, and they restored, guess which article? The labor, beloved. They were the ones who taught biblical baptism. Do you know that's why they're called Baptists? But if you were a Baptist in the days of Roger Williams and John Smith, do you know you would have been persecuted as a cult from guess who? The Presbyterians, the Lutherans, and everyone that came before them. The principle is God's truth is advancing in light. It shines more and more. And when we think we have it all, we fail to see what comes next. God didn't stop there, beloved. In the 1700s, he had a man by the name of John Wesley who founded the Methodist Church, and he was the one who restored evangelism and missionary work. But if you lived in the 1700s and you called yourself a Methodist, you would have been persecuted as a cult by guess who? The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, and everyone that came before. But beloved, I'm thankful that in the 1800s, there was only one piece of furniture remaining to be restored to the people of God. There was only one article of furniture in the entire sanctuary blueprint to be restored to the people of God so that by His grace we would have a complete picture. In the 1800s, God rose up the Seventh-day Adventist movement, restoring the final piece of furniture and the law of God that was contained in it. Now what's interesting about Seventh-day Adventists, beloved, do you know that Seventh-day Adventists, we, we didn't start off with that name. 
The name Seventh-day Adventist didn't exist until the year 1863. But Adventist, the word Adventist means those who believe that God is coming soon. Do you believe that? Then you, do you know that you're an Adventist even if you're not calling yourself a Seventh-day Adventist? We'll get to that on Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists were a combination of people. Among our number, there were people that were Methodists. There were people that were once Lutherans. There were people that were once Presbyterians, people that were once uh, uh, Baptists. Beloved, Seventh-day Adventists represent a team. Do you see that God was raising up a team of people? Do you see that the Lutherans have their place in the work? Do you see that the Presbyterians have their place in the work? The Methodists, the Baptists, all of these people have their place in the work. Have any of you ever watched football before? What happens when one man begins to get tackled to the ground? He passes the ball off. Isn't that right? And the other man that has the ball, if he was tackled and was about to go down, what should he do? What happens if we fumble? Then the other team possesses it. Isn't that right? If we fumble, then the possession goes to the other team. God has had movements raise up over and over and over so that the truth that we have would never fumble. When he raised up the Lutherans, it was their time by the grace of God, and they were persecuted by all who came before. And the same pattern has repeated even to the year 2021. Beloved, do you suppose that if you went by the name Seventh-day Adventist today, you would be persecuted as a cult? Who would you be persecuted by? The Baptists? the Lutherans, the Methodists. Now, are there good people in these churches? The problem, is not the, the problem is not whether or not these are good people. The problem is whether or not we understand the plan. Do we understand the plan, beloved? Because if we're fighting the enemy with only one-third of the plan, can we win that way? We need all that Jesus has to offer, both as a dying lamb and as a living priest. Now, I'm going to close it right here. I just want you to see this picture. Do you know that at the end of what the Bible called the Day of Atonement, the priest who symbolized Jesus Christ was supposed to come out of the sanctuary and place his hands on the head of something called a scapegoat? The scapegoat was symbolic of, guess who? Satan. Now, why would the sanctuary have a, have a, a, a depiction of Jesus putting his hands on the head of a scapegoat? Do you remember in Genesis 3.15? When Jesus promised that he would put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy hill, but that he would bruise your head. Jesus promised that he would bruise the head of Satan. And he does that, beloved, not with one-third of the plan, but with all three parts. He does that, beloved, not just as a dying lamb, but as a living priest. We need Jesus in both of his offices tonight. Have we received the blood of the Lamb of God? Do you know that that blood has power to cleanse you from sin? And the only person who can do that today, his name is Jesus. He is the living priest. He is our advocate with the Father. There is no need to be afraid of judgment when Jesus is your lawyer, beloved. There is no need to be afraid of judgment when Jesus is your close, intimate, and personal friend. I am appealing to you right now because if you've missed anything else that I have ever said, I want us to see that in his sanctuary, God is designed not to be far from us, but to draw near to you and I. Do you know that Jesus actually cares? Men can pretend. Jesus does not pretend, beloved. Jesus actually cares. And if you doubt that what I'm saying is true, go back to your Bible and study what happened in John 
Study what happened in 3180. Study what happened on that cross, beloved. See what God's thoughts are towards you. Thoughts not of evil, but thoughts of peace to bring you and I an expected end. And see for yourself the value of your soul.